hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I've got a bunch of questions this week which all swirl around the same theme, the theme of the sacraments. And I want to take just a few minutes um, and go through them one at a time. Uh, I won't be able to give, in the time I've got available, a massive detailed and comprehensive answer. Uh, Think of this rather as just another one of those moments where it's worth revising some of the things that we know about the sacraments that you may have heard before, you may not have heard before, maybe you'll be hearing it um, here from a slightly different perspective, might shine some light on some things. Uh, It might be that the the particular questions that came in are are specific questions you want to have addressed for you or they might just shed light on other things. But either way, there's three things I want to talk about. Um, Somebody asked a question about uh, how to understand the sacraments in general. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper and then there are a couple of questions after that which I'll come to shortly which are more specific questions uh, about the sacraments now uh, where do we begin okay so what I want to share with you just thinking about how should we understand what baptism and the Lord's Supper are in general terms and how they relate to our faith in Christ our hearing of the word our worship of him and so on and so forth I want to share with you something from one of my favorite theologians this is John Calvin Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is volume two in the two-volume two edition, which is the kind of standard scholarly version that most people use. And this is in book four, uh, chapter 14, section five, where um, Calvin introduces, uh, or rather speaks about this, it's not unique to him, uh, a way of understanding what the sacraments are as seals. Seals, not in the sense of the flappy thing that um, goes at the... Uh, the um, water park when, and does tricks and um, swims around in the sea and eats fish seals in the sense of the seal on a document and it's very interesting to reflect on how Calvin expresses the relationship between the seals, the sacrament or sacraments pardon me, and the words to which they're attached, the word of God let me read a section and then make a couple of comments on it and I might read a little bit more The seals, he writes, which are attached to government documents and other public acts are nothing taken by themselves, for they would be attached in vain if the parchment had nothing written on it. Yet, when added to the writing, they do not, on that account, fail to confirm and seal what is written. Let's just pause there. Two sentences. And Calvin is saying two very valuable things about how the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper relate to the Word of God. Just think for a second about the Word of God. Uh, The Word of God, I've got my Bible here. Word of God is that which contains the promises of God. It uh, details God's plan for the world. It's where we look to find the gospel which we believe, on account of which we're saved, and so on. That's the Word which God has spoken, the word of truth, the gospel, and the whole of the scriptures which are spoken to us. And those seals that are attached to public documents, if you just had a freestanding seal, think of like a wax seal that you might drip some wax on the bottom of a document and then press a a metal um, mold into it to create the image of the, the coat of arms of the king who issued the document, 
that seal, if you just had a blob of wax with that imprint on it, but it wasn't attached to a document, it'd be worthless. Well, it might be worthless, it might be interesting to look at, but it wouldn't convey anything, it wouldn't signify anything valuable, because it's just the seal. The seal has to be attached to a document that has words on it in order for the seal to do anything. And in just the same way, baptism on its own, you know, just baptizing somebody or just giving somebody the bread and the wine doesn't in itself, so to speak, magically convey anything at all. It does so only in connection with the promises of God to which it is attached, so to speak, as a kind of appendix. Calvin uses the illustration of an appendix elsewhere, like the extra thing that's added on. And in this case, it's the extra thing that's added on that signifies that the, the thing is true for you. If you've got a document that's from a king that says, I promise to grant you eternal life on condition of your faith, and then it's got a seal on it, you know it's from the king. If you've got a, a document that says, I promise to be God to you and to your children after you, and then it's got his seal on it, then you know that it's true. It's truly the word of the king, and you can believe that document. Whereas if I just wrote a document like that and gave it to you, you'd have no reason to believe it had come from the living God at all. And so it is that sacraments function as a seal placed not on just the document, but the document as it's appropriated by us. So we, so to speak, hear the word, it's taken into us, and then God puts his seal upon us. So because the word is accompanied by the seal, the word, we, so to speak, know that it's true for us. That's the second thing that Calvin says. When they're added to the writing, they don't fail to confirm and seal that which is written. If you just had the seal, it'd be worthless. But once you've got the word, the promises of God, baptism and the Lord's Supper function like the king's seal. This is proof that these are words from me to you. And that's in Calvin Institute's book four, chapter 14, section five. Look, if that doesn't make you, you people who are interested in digging a little bit deeper into this, uh, want to read Calvin, I don't know what will. Calvin is magnificent on this stuff, and chapter 14 is a great place to start. It's the first of four chapters on the sacraments. He goes, um, sacraments in general, baptism, infant baptism, then the Lord's Supper, and you can have a very profitable um, few hours digging through that. Now, that's where I wanted to start. Next question. Um, you will notice, if you're a member at All Saints, that our baptism liturgy uh, contains a number of uh, promises where we, uh, sorry, a number of uh, pledges which we ask the parents of children who are being baptised to make. Uh, one of them, roughly paraphrased, I haven't got the exact wording in front of me, but says something along the lines of, do you understand that um, should you fail to be faithful to your pledges in raising these children as godly uh, disciples of Christ, this baptism, rather than becoming a blessing, may become a curse instead. Somebody asked the question, my goodness, where do you get that from in the Bible? How do we get this idea that uh, this uh, sign or seal of membership of the family of God could, if neglected, actually become a bad thing rather than a good thing? It could leave you worse off than you had been before. How on earth would that happen? Well, I have to tell you, it's exactly what is said in uh, the Bible itself. It's in Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, when I came to All Saints uh, two and a half years ago, and I witnessed my first baptism service conducted by Pastor Neil, I was uh, delighted to hear those words included among the promises made by parents, because it highlights the care with which that liturgy had been written by Pastor Neil. Obviously, he didn't invent it. He's building it on off the back of other 
uh, historic liturgies, but it, it highlights the attentiveness given to the details of the Word of God. Because in Second Peter chapter 2, um, the Apostle speaks of people who, quote, have escaped the defilements of the Word through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, but then, he continues, are again entangled in them and overcome. So this is speaking of somebody who has uh, in some way joined themselves to the people of God, have become a part of the covenant people. They've um, formally joined through baptism and they've professed faith to some degree. But then he said, they're in, again entangled in the ungodliness of the world and overcome by it. And Peter continues with these chilling words. The last state has become worse for them than the first. He continues, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he quotes what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. But the point that is relevant at this juncture is verse 21. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it for a while then turned away from it. And underlying this is the principle that the way in which we're judged by God is dependent upon the degree of knowledge and understanding that we have. And from those to whom much is given, much is required. Jesus himself says that. And so somebody who has been a part of the covenant people of God and experienced those blessings, who then turns away from them, is doing something worse than somebody who had never experienced those blessings, never turns to Christ in the first place. Now, both are doing what is wrong, but not all sins are the same. And Peter says so here. And so that's why the language of curse appears in that portion of the um, order of worship, the liturgy for baptism. One final question, question number three. Uh, where are we here? Um, why do we say that communion is for baptized believers only as opposed to believers who might not yet have been baptized? That's a good question. Um, you remember that uh, during the Lord's Supper, uh, all saints, uh, I can remember quite well the words I use because I use them pretty much the same words every time I stand there. You remember before we distribute the bread and wine, I'll say something like, uh, this is the Lord's table. And so it's open to anybody who belongs to the Lord. And then I'll say, so that means if you're baptized and you believe in Jesus, if you would normally be worshipping at a church elsewhere where you'd receive the Lord's Supper, please eat and drink here. But if that isn't true for you, perhaps you don't believe in Christ, perhaps you're not sure whether you believe in Christ, you know, you don't know what you believe, um, perhaps you wouldn't normally go to church or you've not been baptized, then please be assured you're most welcome here. But when the bread and wine are brought to you, please let them go past and just abstain. And then if you want to come and talk to us afterwards. So you see, I'm highlighting there exactly what this questioner is bringing out. Why do we make baptism a stipulation? Why isn't just believing enough? And really the answer is, you could put it quite simply by saying we're trying to respect and honour the order and the relationship between the sacraments as they're presented to us in Scripture. The best illustration, I think, is to think of the, uh, the prototypical sacraments of passing through the Red Sea in the days of the Exodus, like baptism, Paul makes that comparison in 1 Corinthians 10, and then feeding on the manna, the bread in the wilderness, again, 1 Corinthians um, uh, 10, which is a bit like the Lord's Supper. And you don't get to eat the bread until you've first been through the water. Now, at one level, that looks like a trivial historical point. Obviously, there's no way out of um, Egypt except through the Red Sea, so kind of obviously that had to be the case. 
but actually it reflects a deeper and more substantive point about the character of those sacraments. We ought to formally, sacramentally welcome somebody into the family of God through baptism before we formally, sacramentally feed them on the body of Christ at the Lord's table. Both are formal sacraments and both therefore ought to be um, uh, taken up in that order. Now it doesn't mean that it's impossible to be saved if you're in the interim period, you've been baptised and you've not received the Lord's Supper, or you have believed but not been baptised and not received the Lord's Supper. You know, we've got examples in Scripture of people whom we know were saved who had never been baptised or received the Lord's Supper, thief on the cross, for example. We've got similar examples under older covenants. John, John the Baptist, who leapt in his mother's womb, uh, was clearly... Um, uh, uh, the hearing the voice of Jesus, remember back at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, clearly we're to understand that as something about the Spirit of God being at work in his heart uh, even before he was born. Uh, ditto the tragedy of David's child who died after his adultery with Bathsheba in Second Samuel. Um, David is confident that he will see the child again. He will not come to me but I will go to him, David says. So sacraments, though vitally important, do not have the kind of absolute necessity that our Roman Catholic friends say they have. It is possible to be saved without the sacraments, and so I wouldn't want to leave somebody uh, super anxious if they, you know, they believe in Christ, not been baptised yet, and the baptism is coming up in two or three weeks' time. Oh my goodness, am I going to be saved? Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry. We have a, a long list of young children here at All Saints who have not yet been baptised, just because we haven't had space in a worship service for them yet. We've got some coming up this week, and then in the next few weeks we've got some coming up. Um, what are we to say about their situation now? Well, we say they belong to the covenant family of God by virtue of the fact that God promises to them that he'll be God to them, because I'll be God to you and to your children after you. It's just we haven't got round to putting the seal on the document yet. The document's been written, it's true that God said what's on the document. It's just we haven't got round to ratifying the seal, uh, ratifying the document with the seal. And we put the seals on in that order, baptism and then the Lord's Supper. It's a way of honouring the integrity of those sacraments as they're presented to us scripturally. So as short answers go, I think that's best I can do. Uh, that'll do for now, I think. Uh, I hope that's been helpful. If it's been useful to you then, um, and you think it'll be useful to other people, please like, share, subscribe, uh, dish it out to anybody else who might find it valuable. But for now, for me, that'll do. God bless, and see you next time. Take care.